You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Exodus chapter 33 verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, and I your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, uh, if you were here with us, we dug into the terrible incident that was the Golden Calf episode. Uh, it would be like that that one episode in a TV show that everyone remembers where, where everything goes wrong, everything went wrong, like home and away every Thursday, basically. But for real, the, the Golden Calf incident was memorable, not in a good way, and rightfully so. God had rescued his people. God had set up a new covenant with them that they would be a holy nation set apart as people of a holy God. And barely a breath after that, while they waited impatiently for Moses to finish his meeting with God, they broke the covenant with God almost immediately. Uh, It was a terrible event. 
building an idol, giving into their sinful desires, breaking loose, just a willful disobedience. It was so bad that many theologians have referred to it as an echo of the fall in Genesis. Just before this, God had laid out plans to dwell with his people, you know, recreating a piece of Eden with them through the building of the tabernacle. And then in a mere heartbeat, God's people go completely bonkers and just create their own God. So the chapters following that we're in today, chapters 33 and 34, we read of the aftermath of the golden calf incident. And what I want to do is have us focus in on the different characters and what happened after. So today we're going to look at the repercussions for Israel, the requests of Moses, and the response of God. So we kick it off with the repercussions of uh, repercussions for Israel, which uh, was touched on briefly in last week's sermon by Luke. So we read uh, in chapter 33, verse 3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So it was evident that in chapter 32, there were consequences for Israel and their disobedience of God. You know, we read of God's judgment on Israel with thousands killed and a plague sent on the people. But perhaps the most crushing for Israel was this one, this one in verse three, uh, in chapter 33, that God will tell them to still go to the promised land, which actually speaks volumes to how gracious God is, that he would still give them the promised land as promised to Israel's forefathers. But the difference is that he won't go among them. The relationship had changed. God will not live among his people. God is saying, because of your sin, because of this sin, I cannot be with you. A Philip Riken theologian says a great line. They were still booked for the promised land, but God had cancelled his reservations. See, remember the chapters just before this were of God instructing Israel to build him the tabernacle, the tent in which he will dwell amidst his people. But now after their their grave sin and disobedience, it looks as if the, the project will not be completed. God is saying, go on to the land I promised you, but you're going without me. See, this has huge ramifications. We can see it evident in verse 7 and 11, where Moses would pitch a tent outside of the camp, calling it the, the tent of meeting as well, which name surely alluded to what was meant to be the true tent of meeting in the tabernacle. But what it looked like was an alternate tabernacle, one that was outside the home dwelling of Israel. Moses would still have access to God through it, but the people did not. It was outside their camp and it was, as verse 7 says, pitched far off from the camp. All Israel could do was watch from afar and, and, and worship as Moses enters. See, this was quite significant because it really paints for Israel just how much things had changed. Uh, theologian Peter N says, God must now connect to the people at a distance in a simple tent with Moses alone in the vicinity. What a stark difference that is to the intimacy of a beautifully crafted tabernacle where God would personally dwell in the mobile home of Israel. Again, the act that God still hasn't abandoned Israel completely speaks to the gracious character of God. But for Israel, the repercussions uh, for the golden calf incident were huge. And the Israelites knew it. In verse 4 to 6, we see that they mourned at the fact that God wouldn't go with them taking off their ornaments, signifying just how distraught they were, how devastated they were with God not being with them. You know, in all of this, if there's one thing I appreciate from the Israelites, it's their response. 
that they were truly distressed with the disastrous news that God would not go with them. Because what that tells me is that they understood just how significant it was to have God be with them. Think they were, they were still offered the promised land, something that Israelite generations had been eagerly waiting for, aching for. God was going to fulfill that promise with them still, that they will get it. The wonderful blessing of abundance, a paradise called home. God was still going to drive out their enemies. He was going to send an angel ahead of them to lead them. The trip's back on folks, you know, sweet, we're all good basically. But no, the Israelites, they mourned because they knew all of that. The blessings, the promise, all meant nothing without God. See, theirs was an appropriate response. The fact that the Israelites mourned that they saw that the blessing of the promised land still didn't compare to the immense joy and satisfaction of God with them is a huge encouragement, I'll admit. I'm encouraged by their response because if I were essentially to ask myself the question, would I be happy to go to the promised land if God wasn't there? It would really have me thinking. See, I remember reading from John Piper in one of his sermons, him saying, you may have heard this sermon before, but John Piper saying, if you could have heaven with all your friends and family there, you're reunited with all your loved ones in your life, have all the foods you could possibly imagine and none of the weight gain, see the beautiful sunsets, the sports you love to play the most, the best beaches to swim, the most glorious mountains, but Jesus wasn't there, is it still heaven? Would you still want to go? This is a very confronting question, isn't it? Well, the, the, all the foods you could have and possibly imagine with no weight gain definitely had my ears perking straight away. But seriously, it's quite a provocative question because I think we could easily be tempted to answer yes to that, to receive all the gifts without the giver. And it makes us think, do we want God or do we want his blessings and gifts? Would we be happy with heaven and all that it has but without the one who created us and saved us for heaven? Do we, as Mark Sayers says, Pastor Mark Sayers says, want the kingdom without the king? And that's why I do appreciate the response of the Israelites here, because they were really shattered by this thought. They knew it wouldn't be worth it in any sense without God going with them, which I'm sure would have made them reflect even more on just how much they had stuffed it up with the golden calf and how serious the repercussions were. The God who was once about to reside with Israel in their temporary homes on way to their true home would now be at a distance as they travelled there without him. And it was really about to be this way. God was going to have this happen if not for the intercession of the one leading them as we now shift to another character in the aftermath of this all and see the requests of Moses. See, one of the things my wife, Lena, looks for in uh, TV shows and movies is good character development. That's why I've really enjoyed suggesting classics to Lena that gets her to watch, that, that she gets to watch for the first time. You know, movie franchises with awesome character development. Star Wars, you know, seeing Luke Skywalker grow into one of the best Jedis ever. Lord of the Rings, seeing the nice little friendly small town hobbits become warriors and heroes who save all the Middle Earth. The Fast and the Furious, you're seeing Vin Diesel and his crew go from stealing DVD players to flying to space. Real character development. That's what it's all about. Well, what follows in verse 12 onwards is actually quite remarkable because we get a great view of the character development of Moses. 
Look what it says in verse 12 and 13. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. See, what we read here is Moses making his requests to God. He's essentially saying who he is actually, who is he actually leading to the promised land exactly? He's saying, I don't know what this means. Who is this angel you're sending ahead, God? No, God, I want you. I want your presence. Please be with me. See, with Moses acknowledging that, yes, he himself has found favor in God's eyes, he makes the plea that he doesn't want to make the journey alone. He needs to know who's coming with him. And this is huge character development from Moses because if we think back earlier to Moses and his first encounter with God at the burning bush, he was a man who was what? Who was doubtful, timid, unassertive, indecisive. Back then he asked for God's help because he was scared. He couldn't do it. He was hesitant. But here we see a different Moses who is commanding, assertive in this encounter with God, with the God Yahweh. This time he isn't asking God, but almost issues a challenge to God, saying that he knows that he is special to God. So he wants God to be with him. It's a plea for God's presence. See, Moses, once the man who shied away from what God demanded of him out of fear and doubt, was now issuing a challenge to God to be with him. See, what growth from Moses. He was now at a point where he knew what he really needed. He needed the mighty covenant-keeping deliverer God with him as he'd he'd lead his people to the promised land. See, while the people of Israel could only mourn at the news of God not being with them on the journey ahead, Moses had such an intimate relationship with God that he couldn't just sit there and accept it, but instead he could make a request to God. And what does God say? Verse 14, God says, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. See, in the original Hebrew, the words you here describe the singular person, you. So God is responding with, I, the Lord, will go with you, with you alone, Moses. Moses got his answer. God will be with him, but not the people Israel. See, for most people, that would be like, this would be enough. Like Moses wasn't part of the whole golden calf incident. He was up in the mountains talking to God. So it makes perfect sense then then that God would single out Moses and not the rest. Actually, most people in Moses' position would have felt quite special and loved to get that privilege alone. But look how Moses responds in verse 15. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favour in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us so that we are distinct I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. That's amazing. Instead of us accepting this, most would say privilege, it isn't enough for Moses. Instead, Moses pleads to God to be present among Israel, his people. God's presence with Moses on his own is not enough. Moses asks, please go with us, with me and your people. So what a remarkable moment in the story of Exodus. The man who once did not want to lead Israel at all was now batting for them in an extraordinary way in front of the mighty Yahweh. See, author Tim Chester says, For all his faults, this is what makes Moses one of the great men of history. 
He turns down God's blessing if it comes without God himself. He turns down God's presence if it's for him alone. He comes before God who has just said, I might destroy you and negotiates with him. And his bottom line, his only aim is the presence of God among the people of God. How amazing is that? We see right in front of our eyes how much of a leader Moses had become. He sees no honour in being the only one to reach the promised land. Not just be with me, but be with us. See, even in his frustration and anger at Israel for their grave mistake in the Golden Calf episode, Moses saw how important it was that God still be with them. And he says it in one of the most amazing ways. As Again, I'll read verse 16. This part in verse 16 is awesome. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, we remember the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis where God said, I will be a God to you and your children after you. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is what distinguished them from the rest of the world. They were God's people chosen by him and delivered by him. In other words, Moses in his plea is saying, God, it is your presence that makes us your people. And I love what Moses hits at here. The one thing that makes God's people distinct is God with them. Our God is what makes us distinct to the world. See, Kevin DeYoung sums it up well. What distinguished Israel from the other nations? Their land? They had none. Their pedigree? They were recently enslaved. Their obedience and righteousness? Hardly. What set them apart was not what they had, where they were from or what they looked like, but who was with them. See, Israel were called to be a holy people, a priesthood set apart for God. But if God was not with them, then they're really none of that, aren't they? They'd just be decent, moral, living, nice people. And the sad thing is I think many Christians in the world today would be happy with that, would be happy to settle for the life where God is distant one where he gives us a few things, where where God helps us get to where we want to go, helps us stay out of trouble, thinking that's what defines us as God's people, that, that nice moral life and getting good stuff. But Moses knew better. Moses is saying that that doesn't make us special at all. What would separate us from others who also live decent lives and get to where they want to go? We're not just going to look like everyone else. Moses emphasizes that the thing greater than anything that makes us different from everybody else is that you, God, you are our God, that God, you are with us. And it's such an awesome verse in the context of everything, isn't it? He was a man, Moses, fighting for his people that they not be left behind, pleading to God that, that not just he, but as God's people, they need God with them. See, in Moses' eyes, God's reputation was at stake. See, as God's people, Israel were on mission to the world to reflect the holy God as a holy nation. That's what we've been seeing in Exodus. And Tim Chester says, if God abandoned Israel, then God abandons his mission to the world. See, in the aftermath of the golden calf incident, we can see Moses loved his people, interceding for them. But what we see even more is just how much Moses loved God, that he knew that he and his people Israel had nothing without God's presence, that they were nothing without God's presence. 
And so as we read the following verses, shifting from Moses, we see the response of God. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. See, in response to Moses, we see God relents, saying he will do what Moses has asked. And this shouldn't be all too surprising to us, as only a chapter a chapter ago, almost the same thing happened, where God relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people because of Moses' intervention. And just as touched on in last week's sermon by Luke, with what seems like God changing his mind because of Moses, I think God does so, as what Brevard Charles says, to allow himself to be persuaded. God himself leaves the door open for intercession. That's what a mediator is for. So we know God is indeed sovereign, in control of everything. He knows what will happen before that happen. So what I think is I think what always this was always God's intention and plan to do this very thing. Again, Tim Chester says, God chose to do it through the courageous intervention of Moses. I think done in order to highlight their need for his presence. And I think something else it highlights about God is his mercy. See, what follows is Moses making another request to see, Mo- to see God's glory. Moses wants to see God, wants to know what God looks like. Moses does this as a way of asking God for some demonstration of the promise he just made, like put it in writing, God, let me see you. And how God responds is actually pretty surprising. He tells Moses he will pass in front of him. So Moses will see his back in a sense, more figurative language rather than a a human back that we may imagine. But nonetheless, God says all his goodness will pass in front of Moses. But what's striking is what is said in verse 19. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. See, Moses asks to see God, and instead God proclaims his name Yahweh to him. And this has obvious allusions back to their initial encounter in Exodus 3, where God first proclaimed his name to Moses. And there's good reason for this, because I think it suggests a starting over of things, that Moses is once again again called to lead his people. Even after Israel's grave sin that we heard last week in the chapter before this, God is willing to start over. And it's actually quite beautiful when we think about it in the context of all that's happened. Because again, here was Israel who in the golden calf tried to remake a God that was tangible, physical and able to be seen. But in a starting over, God would make clear that he can't be pictured. He can't be visualized, let alone remade. Israel tried to contain God in an image, the calf, but God is so much bigger, so much better that they could even, bigger than they can even imagine. Actually, in verse 20, any, God says anyone who would, who could see, could somehow see God's face would instantly die. So what we get instead is God declaring his name and not a description of what he looks like, but rather a description of who he is, gracious and merciful. It's a beautifully powerful declaration from God. It's brave of Moses. It's gracious and merciful of God. And what we get in all of chapter 34 is this clear picture of God's grace and mercy in the next chapter, in chapter 34. As in chapter 34, we see new tablets of his law made through Moses. 
In chapter 34, we see he renew his covenant with his people. But what we also see is God passed before Moses as he said he would, proclaiming his name Yahweh and giving an even more in-depth description of who he is. Look at verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, what we've seen in the whole story of Exodus is that these lists of attributes of God are indeed true. It's not just in the chapters today, but all throughout Exodus, we've seen this, haven't we? It's because he is gracious. It is because God is gracious that he brought Israel out of Egypt. That same grace is shown to his people here in the aftermath of the golden calf incident. In Exodus, we've read of a God who burns with anger, but is slow to anger. We've read of a God who doesn't overlook sin, but also forgives sin. A God who is faithful to those unfaithful to him. And I just love that God responds to Moses and Israel after all that has happened by showing them who he is and telling them who he is. The same merciful, compassionate, gracious, true, just God that they've known all along. See, I wanted us to see the different characters in the aftermath of the golden calf incident because I think these chapters give us a a snapshot of a long, consistent pattern to come in Scripture. God's people will stuff up again. Even when they're residing in the promised land, they will stuff up, living in sin and disobedience, spiralling out of control, golden calves all over again, basically, then mourning when finding out God's judgment is to come. God will keep raising up faithful leaders, others like Moses who go on to lead his, his people, strong characters who grow in faith and trust in the Lord over the span of their lives. And the most consistent pattern that we'll see in all of this, the God described here in Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, abounding in love, slow to anger, merciful and gracious. The most consistent pattern is he remains the same to his people. It seems an ongoing cycle for all. And I think it's because there's an unresolved tension. Again, it said in verse 7 there of chapter 34, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God's people have a great hope in the merciful God, but God is also holy and just. He forgives sin and he punishes sin. And this tension remained unresolved for much of Scripture. Until John chapter 1 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, while Moses or anybody or anybody was not able to see the full glory of God and live, in the Gospel of John, we read of people seeing the glory of God in his Son Jesus. In Jesus, we see God's glory and there is life. How is this tension of a God who forgives rebellion, wickedness and sin, yet at the same time does not leave the guilty unpunished be resolved? 
Again, John 1 verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness and punishment, mercy and justice, grace and truth. These all meet in the person, the work, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When Jesus died on the cross, it was our guilt that was punished that we may be forgiven. It was our judgment that was taken so we could enjoy mercy. Tim Chester says the truth of our sin was recognised and accounted for so that we could know the joy and peace and life of God's grace. We read of the description of God in Exodus 34, and it truly makes sense because of Jesus. At the start of this all, God said that to Moses, that he would not go with Israel even for a single moment, for he might destroy them. What the gospel tells us, is God has destroyed his people in the person of his son, Jesus. That means there is no penalty left to pay. Jesus paid it all on our behalf. See, in our passage today, God's character was described to Moses and Israel, who got to not only hear it, but see it. They got to live it. And yet it still pointed to something better. We stand on the side of history where God's character was fully revealed at the cross with Jesus, where justice and mercy meet. So for God's people today, we don't have the fear of God's presence leaving us like Israel. Jesus has promised us that he is with us always until the end of the age. For God's people today, we aren't identified by what we do or where we've come from. We're identified by whom we belong to, Christ. For God's people today, we can rest assured that our God is one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving of sins, as seen completely in the glory of his son, Jesus. And for us today, we can hold on to the hope that there will come a time where we will get to see his face and eternity in the presence of our glorious God in our promised true home. It's no wonder that what God, after God described himself to his people, Moses responded the only way he knew appropriate. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Let's pray together. God, you are a God so merciful, so gracious, Lord. We see here that this was your people who you have been so faithful to, yet they've been so unfaithful to you. And yet after such a huge incident as the golden calf incident, Lord, you still showed your mercy and grace using the intercession of Moses that you will be with your people, Heavenly Father. None of this deserved by us, none of this by anything that the Israelites uh, deserved to have or could do, Lord, but only because of who you are abounding in love, slow to anger, full of truth. You are just, Lord. We thank you that we see your truth, your grace, 
your justice and mercy meet in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. That, Lord, it was only in the work of Jesus, in his death and resurrection, that truly uh, justice and truth, love and grace meet, Lord. We thank you that he took on our punishment, that we may have life in him. Lord, you are exactly who you are, uh, exactly who you say you are in this passage, Lord. How amazing we come to you in worship that as said, as described of you all the way back in Exodus, that you remain the same. You are the only thing that remains the same all throughout eternity. And we hold on to that hope. May you open our hearts. May you help us hold on to the hope that one day we will get to see your face, that we will get to spend that eternity with you in the presence of your son, Jesus. And we thank you uh, for the life that you've given us in Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.